Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Are big companies finally wising up to the value of small shareholders? Merrin Somerset-Webb joins me to rant about landlords who are dodging income tax on rental income from their buy-to-let properties. And is it possible to find a savings account that pays more than the rate of inflation? My own research shows it is, but savings expert Andrew Hager joins me to discuss if all the hoops you have to jump through are really worth it. Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's weekly podcast about personal finance and investing. I'm Claire Barrett, FT Money Editor, bringing you this week's money news. As a private investor, do you feel that your voice is being listened to? Well, there's growing evidence that some of the companies you might invest in are ready to hear what you have to say. Some boards, sensing change in the air, have begun to engage with their smaller investors directly. But will this herald a broader awakening among the UK's smaller shareholders? Joining me now to discuss is Amy Williams, FT Money reporter, who's written all about the issue this week. Welcome, Amy. Hello. So what evidence is there that companies are paying their small shareholders greater attention? Well... The main piece of evidence is that Marks and Spencers, which is loved by small shareholders, has recently launched a small shareholder panel. So this is a sort of small committee of around 15 small shareholders, which will meet four times a year with Marks and Spencers board members and other bigwigs to discuss things about Marks and Spencers and talk about their business plans in various areas. And Marks and Spencers say they've done this because they realise that small shareholders are important, but also could be quite helpful to the business in terms of telling them about things they're doing wrong or badly or things that they could do better. That's one example. Hmm. The other one is RBS, the bank, who had decided not to have a small shareholder committee. They had been receiving letters from small shareholders requesting this. But they instead have got a special meeting, sort of like an annual general meeting, but a special meeting set aside specifically for small shareholders. And they invite around 200 small shareholders to come and ask questions of their board and have some canapes and talk to executives as well. So these are both really big FTSE 100 companies and they're both paying more attention to small shareholders. So I suppose the big question is why? Why are they doing it? There's been a bit of a change of atmosphere, I think, and people that I've spoken to in in business people have have all kind of acknowledged this change. So people are starting to talk a little bit about uh, executive pay, Mm -hmm. for example. Earlier this year or at the end of last year as well, we saw uh, fund managers and 
pension fund managers and, and other institutional shareholders start to get quite annoyed on this issue and start voting against boards. And I think boards of large companies started to realise that actually shareholders matter. And although really it's the big shareholders who really, really matter to them, I think they're thinking ahead and they're thinking, actually, we've got some small shareholders as well. And if they all band together, then that could be potentially quite tricky. It could lead to some sticky spots further down the line. Okay, obviously RBS and and M&S are both big consumer businesses. So those small shareholders are are likely to be be customers and and shoppers as well. Exactly. How easy is it for small shareholders to get involved generally in the affairs of companies? That's the question. It's not very easy, it turns out. So unfortunately, most shareholders hold shares. So you you hold them through a broker. So we'll say say Hargreaves Lansdowne. And brokers tend to keep your shares in something called a nominee account. Mm. So this means that although you do kind of own the shares, you technically don't own the shares. And if you were to go to the shareholder register of, say, Marks & Spencer's, and you held your Marks & Spencer shares in a nominee account with Hargreaves Lansdowne, or say, for example, on the shareholder register, it will say that Hargreaves Lansdowne holds the shares and not that you hold the shares. So this RBS shareholder meeting that I referred to if you held your shares in a nominee account, you weren't invited to that meeting because RBS doesn't know who you are, it doesn't have your name or address, and it doesn't know how to get hold of you. And and so an RBS spokesperson told me that they couldn't get around that and they, they just didn't bother inviting those people, which is a shame because those people mm. are legitimate shareholders as well, but they're getting a kind of second-rate treatment through no fault of RBSs, but because they are holding the shares in a nominee account. So well, that's... Yeah, I mean, you would think this is a fault in the system because technology nowadays must make it really easy for a company to say, well, these are nominees and we can pass on the invitation to them by means of a thing called an email. You'd think so. And and actually, for the brokers, for their part, they say that, oh, it's all very, it's all very easy for us to pass on this information to their shareholders. And voting is the other thing, proxy voting. Mm. If you own shares, you can usually vote... In, in companies' annual general meetings. But Hargreaves Lansdowne say most of their investors who, who hold shares through them don't actually bother voting. And there, there are questions around how well, how easy is it for you to vote if you hold your shares in a nominee account? Are you being reminded? Are you being sent information? And it seems this the level of information you're given varies from broker to broker. And, and also depends on how much interest you've shown, I suppose. Well, sure, difficult to tell whether it's people not knowing about it or not being bothered. But to play devil's advocate here, being on a small shareholder panel sounds like it could be quite a lot of effort. So why should people bother? Well, small shareholders individually hold a relatively small portion of the shares. And yeah, they're, they're not very powerful compared to fund managers. But if people banded together and companies started to realise that collectively these small shareholders own, you know, a decent whack of the shares, they might start listening a bit more. So it's it's kind of worth starting to show a bit of interest, going to these AGMs if you can, although they might be very far away and difficult to get to and all that. But I mean, at the very least, people could phone their broker, make sure that they vote on their shares on things like executive pay. I spoke to one member of ShareSock, which is one of the UK's small shareholders groups, uh, mm. and he said that putting in a bit of effort and going to AGMs at one point got him invited to join the board of a of a small cap company. So that's quite interesting, you know. You know, and uh, John Lee, one of our FT Money economists, said that actually most companies would throw their arms around small investors turning up at AGMs, and this perception that companies don't want to talk to small shareholders isn't right, and shareholders need to start turning up and asking questions and show more enthusiasm and that the companies would probably like that. 
Well, having sat through a couple of M&S AGMs myself when I was a resale <laughs> correspondent, I can assure you they were always very spirited affairs. But thanks very much there to Amy Williams, FT Money reporter. You can read her full article on Saturday in the money section of the FT Weekend newspaper or read online from Friday at ft.com slash money. Are thousands of buy-to-let landlords getting away with tax evasion? This is the subject that Merrin Somerset Webb debated in her FT Money column last week, following news that Newham Council in London had around 27,000 landlords officially registered on its books, yet only half appeared to be registered for self-assessment with HMRC. Merrin's piece provoked a storm of comments online from FT readers, and joining me now to discuss is the lady herself. Welcome, Merrin! Hello. So in your column, you scaled up Newham's calculations and you reckon the true scale of landlord tax evasion across the country could be costing the revenue £150 million a year. How did you get to that figure? Well, I made very generous assumptions. I just looked at the number of landlords in the UK, about 1.75 million. I assumed that they are um, cheating slightly less than they are in Newham, and that gave me 500,000 people who don't declare properly. And then I assumed gross rents are rather lower than, than you have in London, obviously. £10,000 a year or so, then I took a similar profit margin, blended the tax rate, and ended up with £150 million. Other people have done the numbers in slightly different ways. My number is lower than other people's. One think tank came up with 180, and other estimates have put it as high as a billion. So, but however you look at it, you're talking real money. So there's mm-hmm. two things going on here. The first is that, assuming these numbers are correct, there's an enormous amount of money not making it into the Treasury, which of course is a cost to all of those people who are honest with their taxes. And the second is not just the amount of money, but the amount of people. You know, every single piece of HMRC literature that looks at the tax gap in any way refers to the vast majority of people who are honest and pay their taxes correctly. But if you extrapolate from these numbers, There is no vast majority of people being honest and paying their taxes properly. That's only a tiny majority of people. There's many, many more people than one might have liked to hope who aren't 100% honest when it comes to the taxes. So over 250 readers commented on this story online on Mm. FT.com, most of them saying bravo Merrin, but many taking issue with HMRC's ability to snoop by joining the dots of different data sources to work out who should be paying and who isn't. Yeah, this is a very difficult area. You know, I mean, a regular reader of my column will know that I feel very strongly about financial privacy, which is why I've been very against any any discussion of banning cash or making all payments digital, etc. I feel strongly that we should have some element of financial privacy in our lives. And when you look at the way that HMRC is now able to manipulate data, that financial privacy is basically gone unless you're transacting in cash. However, you know, we do run a system here where as a, as a democratic nation, we've decided to have a very large and very expensive welfare state. We've decided to have the NHS. We've decided to do all the things that, that we do as a nation. And this has to be paid for. And if there really is this extraordinarily large number of people who one way or another have decided that they don't have to contribute uh, in the way that other people, then, you know, there's a, there's a problem here. And so do we approve of HMRC using the data to make sure that everyone pays the same level of taxes as, say, you do, Claire, and I do? Or do we think that financial privacy is more important? This is a, a huge debate that is going to come, you know, come to the fore over the next couple of years. But you know, this shows us just how uh, relevant it is. Well, indeed. And I've had a, a young friend this week call me up. She's renting a flat in Hackney. And she said, what do I do? Because the landlord has asked for the rent to be paid in cash every month. And sadly, you know, I think we'll maybe see 
more of that. But that's not just because of HMRC's, you know, snooping technology in the Connect system. Uh-huh. This is also because of the wider changes in the buy-to-let sector. I mean, landlords who do pay their taxes are going to find that their tax bills increase this year regardless because of the gradual withdrawal of tax relief on mortgage interest. And combined with higher stamp duty and the, the ban on letting agent fees coming in next year, uh-huh. we think, you know, this is more pain being passed on to the landlord. So do you think they'll come to regret their property investments? I suspect an awful lot of them already have. I mean, if you look at the numbers on uh, buy-to-let over the last decade or so, you'll see that in the main, people have been relying on capital gains rather than yield to make their overall returns. So you say to people, well, this doesn't look like it's working for you. And they say, well, it is working for me because I'm making the capital gains. So even yeah. even though I'm only roughly cash flow neutral on an annual basis, I'm still making money. If you add in the tax changes, uh, anyone who is paying tax, let's put aside for the minute the people who aren't paying tax, but anyone who is paying tax may well find that their yield, their annual yield, turns negative. And once you're actually having to pay up to own a property every year, it becomes a much less attractive proposition. So I expect we will see quite a lot more sales coming through in the buy-to-let market, which in a way is good because, you know, we've been talking for years about how overpriced a property market is, how difficult it is mm-hmm. for the young to get on, how hard it is for first-time buyers. And buy-to-let properties tend to be the same kind of properties as a first-time buyer would want. So if the buy-to-let owners are selling up, then this is obviously a good thing for first-time buyers. Now, another thing to take into account in this is that if it is really the case that across the UK, half of landlords are not paying their taxes properly, obviously, they have a much higher yield than they should have. And that high yield is obviously going to have a knock-on effect on property prices because, you know, well, to my mind and I think probably to yours as well, property prices are to a large effect uh, a function of the yield and a no-tax yield is higher than a tax yield. If there is a crackdown that forces landlords to somehow pay their taxes and how you find all of them, I don't know. Newham has a, a licensing system that other places don't have. But if they are found and if, a, if there is a continuing clampdown and everyone does have to pay tax, then the yield obviously falls. And that should, again, have a knock-on effect on the property prices, which, again, is a good thing. And just finally, to play devil's advocate, mm. I know for a fact that around half of FT money readers have got a second property, whether that's a mm. buy-to-let or a holiday home. Does any part of you feel at all sorry for those landlords who have been playing by the rules and now face... Absolutely, 100%. I mean, it's awful to find that you have bought something or done something on the basis of tax rules as they stand, and then to find that a change in those rules uh, affects your personal position when you haven't done anything wrong, when you are not the tax cheat, when you're not taking advantage of your tenants or any of these things. However, it is true that the buy-to-let sector did have a tax advantage over the ordinary buyer, and just because it's going to affect a certain number of people who have behaved entirely honestly and correctly doesn't mean that we should let something that isn't quite right stand. Well, thanks very much there to Merrin Somerset-Webb, the FT columnist. You can hear Merrin speak at the upcoming FT Weekend Festival held on Saturday the 2nd of September at Kenwood House in London. To buy a ticket for our annual jamboree and read the full terms and conditions, please see the festival website, www.ftweekendfestival.com. How difficult is it to get an inflation-beating rate of interest on your cash savings? Last week's figures showed that inflation is currently running at 2.6%, yet you will struggle to find any savings accounts on the high street with interest rates that even match that amount. Yet it can be possible to get up to 5% interest, if you play your cards right. I'm joined by Andrew Hagger, the savings expert behind the Moneycoms website, to tell us how. Welcome, Andrew. Hello there, Claire. So tell me, which type of accounts are offering the best rate of interest right now? 
Well, the returns offered on the standard savings accounts and cash ISAs are very low. I mean, many high street banks are offering next to nothing. I mean, even locking your money away for five years, you'll only earn a below inflation 2.5%. So you need to be creative and perhaps invest a little time to get a decent return. And surprisingly, it's current accounts that are offering the best deals especially those where you have a regular saver account, which comes as part of the package. Okay, talk us through how that works. Okay, so the first thing to do is to consider transferring your existing current account, and you can do that by using the current account switching service. That way you will get yourself a nice little welcome bonus for switching £100, maybe £125. But then as part of that current account customer experience, you are then able to open a regular saver account, and some of these pay as much as 5%. So you open your current account and then you start saving regularly for 12 months um, to ensure you get the maximum interest available. So, you know, drip feeding your money is a great savings habit to get into. But I always think the key thing is to get your standing order to come out of your current account on payday. Then you don't miss it. It almost becomes the norm. I mean, I find too many people say, oh, I'll wait till the end of the month and see what's left. And unfortunately, then there isn't any. Yes, I completely agree. And I do that tactic myself. The sweep comes um, on, on payday for all of my savings and indeed my stocks and shares ISA. But I wrote in my FT Money column last week about how I've opened a nationwide current account. And my husband has done too. Now he's got the £100 switching bonus, as you mentioned, plus nationwide pays 5% interest on its regular saver and he can transfer up to £250 a month to that. But when working out how much interest you'd receive, you have to use a special online calculator to work all this out, don't you? Yeah, I mean, there's a great little calculator on um, Martin Lewis's Money Saving Expert website. Just type in how much you're planning to save each month, the interest rate you're getting, and it will tell you how much interest you'll earn. I mean, it's really simple. And at least you've got an idea of, you know, what you're feeding your money away, what you're going to get back at the end of it. So, yeah, worth, definitely worth doing. Yeah, because I use this to look at another regular saver that I could have set up with a local building society, but I would have had to have travelled to Chichester, I think, to set up um, the account in a branch. And I worked out that although the headline rate of interest looked quite good, because it's paid at the end of the term and your money's building up gradually month by month, the cost of the train ticket (laughs) combined (laughs) with the level of interest meant that doing that one wasn't worth my while. But listeners may think, why are the banks prepared to offer decent rates of interest on current accounts? accounts and regular savers attached to them for 12 months, but not on normal savings accounts. I think the, the key reason is that they want, you, they want your current account business. And then, you know, they want to try and get you to stay for at least a year anyway. And when you think about it, they're only offering high interest rates on relatively small amounts of money. It's not sort of huge lump sum deposits that people can pay in with most of these. Um, you're looking at 3000 or £3,600 over 12 months. So it's not a, it's not a huge amount for them. I guess, you know, the bank's got you there for 12 months. They'll look after you, hopefully treat you well, and they hope to persuade you to stay longer term. And I guess their ultimate aim is that maybe they'll be able to sign you up for a mortgage or a pension or, or even investments. And that, that's where they, you know, they can make their money. Indeed, or even a credit card. Um, we've already been asked um, and we've respectfully declined. So, as you say, smaller amounts of cash, um, the money that you're saving up for a rainy day, if you can be bothered, um, as I write in my column, to switch things around, you could maybe earn three to £400 or so on five or £6,000 um, of cash. But beware, these deals generally only last for one year. Yeah, that is, that, is, that is a problem. It is a 12-month thing, and then at the end of it, you've got to work out what you're going to do. I mean, 
you know, the, the best three of these regular savers in the market are nationwide that you already mentioned. I'd also like First Direct and M&S. Um, and all three of those providers say at the end of your 12 months, you will be able to open a separate regular saver at whatever the prevailing rate is then. So it's not guaranteed it's still going to be 5% in 12 months' time. But, you know, it may be an option to carry on. But um, at that time, you've also got a lump sum that you've built up and you've got to find a home for that. So that, <laughs> that causes another headache. Indeed, or you could use it to pay for a holiday. And, and from memory, the First Direct and, and, and M&S, what are they paying on their regular savers? So First Direct and M&S are both paying 5%. And both of those two, the interest rate is fixed for the 12-month duration. The only difference is First Direct allows you to save £300 a month compared to uh, M&S, which is 250 The nationwide account that you referred to, that's 5%. But that interest rate is variable, so it's not guaranteed to stay the same throughout the, uh, the 12 months, and you need to keep an eye on that. Indeed it is. And another thing to watch is the terms, if you if you want the money back, um, or to access the money during the 12 months, you need to dip into your savings. You could be penalised. Yeah, that's a really important point, actually, because Nationwide is fine. That account lets you make withdrawals, although really that's not the, the point of a regular saver, but at least if you do want your money, you In can In an emergency. Get yeah. yeah. But with M&S and First Direct, if you want to um, get your money out, you actually have to close the account at that stage, and you lose that 5% interest, I and mean, you... Um, get given a quite a sort of derogatory rate. So um, with M&S, um, it reverts to their everyday savings rate, which is uh, a miserly 0.35%. And First Direct is even worse. It drops to its standard savings rate of 0.05%. So I mean, that's a huge incentive not to take your money out. Yes, indeed. So always read the small print and remember there's no substitute for doing your own research. So thanks very much there to Andrew Haggart of Moneycoms. You can follow Andrew on Twitter. He has the most excellent Twitter handle I've ever heard of, at Haggardu, H-A-G-G-E-R-D-O, which should appeal to listeners of a certain age. And you can read my FT Money column on where to find an inflation-beating savings account now on ft.com slash money. That's it from The Money Show this week. We'll be back next Thursday at the usual time. Before then, you can get in touch with us via email, money at ft.com, follow us on Twitter at ftmoney, or comment on any of our articles online at ft.com slash money. See you next Thursday. Goodbye. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.